Hello gang, Bill Creasy here with Scripture Uncovered on Easter morning. What a holy week it's been. The crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is the single most important event in all of human history. And if we've grown up in a Christian environment, we take it all rather for granted. But think about it for a bit. The crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, you get a real sense of the utter brutality of Jesus' trial, his scourging, and his crucifixion. The utter agony of it all. We read in the Gospel according to Matthew that during the first three hours Jesus suffered on the cross and humanity did the absolute worst it could do. We sank to the lowest of the low. What we did, what humanity did to Christ, is beyond imagination. Utterly beyond imagination. We sank to the very, very bottom. Oh, Satan was very joyful on that day of Jesus' crucifixion. In the Gospel according to Matthew, the first three hours, we did our worst. But we also find in the Gospel according to Matthew that during the third to the sixth hour of Jesus' crucifixion, God dropped a blanket of darkness over the cross. In those first three hours, humanity sank to its lowest point and took its best shot at Jesus. But in those second three hours, the transaction between the Father and the Son took place. During that second three hours, all the sins of all people who ever have lived, who now live, or who will ever live, all the sins of humanity, he took upon himself. And he paid the penalty for that sin before a holy and righteous God, enabling our salvation. We can imagine watching a movie the utter pain and agony of Jesus' suffering in those first three hours. But when we step out of this world into the presence of Christ, and we all shall, and we look into his eyes and we see the wounds on his hands and feet and side, we could be with him for a million years in eternity, and we will never, ever fathom the depth and the blackness of the suffering that he went through to bring us to that point. The crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The burial of Christ, we get a clear picture of it in John chapter 19, where we read that Joseph of Arimathea, secretly a disciple of Jesus, asked Pilate if he could remove the body of Jesus, and Pilate permitted it. So he came and took his body, Nicodemus, the one who had come to him at night in the Gospel according to John, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. They took the body of Jesus and bound it with burial cloths along with the spices according to Jewish burial custom. So Jesus' body would have been washed and then the myrrh and aloe applied. The myrrh, about 100 pounds of it, like a, like a big bucket full of lard. They would take 
a handful slather up his left hand and then begin wrapping his left hand in linen strips, first with the thumb and then the forefinger, then the middle finger, the ring finger, the little finger, and finally the whole hand. Then they would slather it up again and put another layer of linen strips and so on for the left hand, the right hand, the left arm, the right arm, the left foot, the right foot, the left leg, the right leg. And then they would put the feet and the legs together at his side, slather up the whole body, and wrap the whole body in strips of linen until they used up that hundred pounds of myrrh and aloe. Why, when they were finished with him, he looked like the Michelin Man. And then they took the body of Jesus, bound it with the burial cloths, as was the Jewish custom, and in the place where he had been crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been buried. So they laid Jesus there because of the Jewish preparation day for the tomb was close by. Jesus was placed in the tomb on Friday evening. And then the days passed. We looked at the tradition that's mentioned in Scripture of the harrowing of hell, what happened on Saturday when Jesus was in that tomb, when his spirit descended into the underworld or released those who were held there. But Sunday morning, something happened. The resurrection. And that's a little problematic, I think, for most people today. Paul encountered the same difficulty uh, with the resurrection when he was in Corinth. The Corinthians just simply couldn't comprehend it. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at verse 12, But if Christ is preached as raised from the dead, how can some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That's a good question. We're talking about a physical, bodily resurrection, not some kind of spiritual resurrection or metaphor. When Jesus was resurrected, he had a body, one that showed his wounds, a body people could touch, a body that ate. And yet, Jesus' resurrected body could appear suddenly in locked rooms and be in Jerusalem one moment and in Galilee the next. So how's that possible? For most people, that really strains credulity. But that's what the Gospel says. In St. Paul's day, a physical, bodily resurrection was as difficult for people to accept as it is for us today. Now, we might readily agree that when we die with our sins forgiven, our spirit or soul moves into the presence of God where we live forever. But the idea that our corpse that's buried in the ground or burned to ash will one day arise as a new, glorious, and eternal body seems utterly incredible. Something that unschooled ancients might have accepted, but certainly not something a modern, sophisticated person could accept. Yet, that's what St. Paul asks us to believe as the very core of the gospel message. The blessed hope is the resurrection. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19, Paul continues on, saying that if there is no resurrection from the dead, then neither has Christ been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then empty too is our preaching. Empty too your faith. Then we're also false witnesses to God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then neither has Christ been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And if that's the case, those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. And if for this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are the most pitiful people of all. Everything hinges on the physical, bodily resurrection of Christ. So let's take a look at it. And we find our best illustration over in the Gospel according to John in chapter 20. We read chapter 20 beginning at verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early in the morning while it was still dark and saw the stone removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, and told them, they've taken the Lord from the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Well, Mary Magdalene nearly always appears at the foot of the cross with Mary, Jesus' mother, and John, often with her arms raised toward Jesus or embracing and kissing his feet, as in the Giotto's stunning 1304 fresco on the north wall, lower tier of the Scrovegni Chapel in Padua, Italy. We were there a couple of years ago, and it is an extraordinary thing to see that chapel. If you're in Padua, Italy, by all means, buy a ticket and go. Admission is limited do it well ahead of time. Well, appearing with Mary and John, Mary Magdalene kissing Jesus' feet suggests her intimacy with Jesus and her position within Jesus' inner circle. Now, notice the details of the scene that I just read to you. Mary arrives early in the morning while it was still dark. She arrives alone in John's Gospel, not expecting to enter the tomb since the stone would still be in place. Her presence in the pre-dawn hours suggests Mary's profound grief and her need to be near Jesus, even in death. Mary saw the stone removed from the tomb. The word saw in the Gospel according to John in the Greek text is blepo, literally to see with the bodily eye, a simple observation. Mary's response is to run Treco, to go in haste to Peter and John, concluding, understandably, that someone had stolen Jesus' body during the night. Well, like Mary, both Peter and John run, Treco, to the tomb, reinforcing the scene's tension and urgency. Once at the tomb, John sees the empty tomb, Blepo, a simple observation of fact but he doesn't go in. When Peter arrives, he goes into the tomb and he sees, Blepo again, the burial linens and the cloth that covered Jesus' head rolled up separately. And John saw 
and believed. Here, John switches from blepo to see, a simple observation of fact, to horao, to see with full comprehension. Peter went in and he saw literally, physically, the strips of linen and the folded cloth. And then John went in, and we read in John chapter 20, verse 8, the other disciple, John, went in, you know, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. So that's our harao, full comprehension. Nicely done. Switching from blepo to orao moves the action from a simple observation of facts to a full understanding of what the facts mean. And note the foot race. Peter and the other disciple went out and they came to the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple ran faster than Peter and arrived at the tomb first. He bent down and saw the burial cloths there, but he didn't go in. When Simon Peter arrived after him, he went into the tomb and saw the burial cloths and the cloth that had covered his head, not with the burial cloths, but rolled up in a separate place. Then the other disciple also went in, you know, the one who had arrived at the tomb first, and he saw and believed. I think that's really funny. John reminds us three times that he outran Peter. Now, if John is writing his gospel when John is in his 80s, thinking back to these days long ago, you know, I'll bet Peter and John, when they were on the road with Jesus up in Galilee, teaching and preaching, I'll bet as they were walking down the road, young John, who's clearly younger than Peter, John must have said, hey, Peter, I can beat you down to that tree. Peter said, no, you can't. Want to bet? And off they ran. And who won? Well, here, John tells us, I don't know who, ran, who won then, but John won this time on the foot race to the tomb. That's pretty funny, it seems to me. But although John saw and believed, neither he nor Peter understood from Scripture the reality and significance of Jesus' resurrection. They had not yet connected the scriptural dots. That will come later, between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, when Jesus teaches his disciples everything written about him in the Law of Moses, in the Prophets, and in the Psalms. But Mary stayed outside the tomb, weeping. As she wept, she bent over into the tomb and saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken my Lord, and I don't know where they put him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus there, but did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Well, she thought it was the gardener, and she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I'll take him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned, and she said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. She had reached out. She had clutched onto him. 
Jesus said, stop holding on to me. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Now go to my brothers and tell them, I'm going to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary of Magdala went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and what he told her. So why doesn't Mary recognize Jesus after his resurrection? I think I'd recognize him. But resurrection differs from resuscitation. Many people in scripture have been raised from the dead. You might recall, Elijah raises the widow of Zarephath's son in 1 Kings 17. Elisha raises the Shunammite's son in 2 Kings 4. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter in Mark 5 and Luke 8. Jesus raises the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. Jesus raises Lazarus in John 11, and we read in Matthew 27 that, tomb, that when Jesus died on the cross, tombs were opened and the bodies of many saints who had fallen asleep were raised. <coughs> Excuse me. These are resuscitations. A dead corpse reanimated. They're not resurrections. But Jesus' body was resurrected. Jesus' crucified, dead body was put into the tomb on Friday before sunset. Jesus' resurrected body came out of the tomb on Sunday, sometime after sunrise. When the stone was rolled away from the tomb, Jesus was already gone. Jesus tells Mary Magdalene to stop holding on to me, as if he's somehow uncomfortable in this newly resurrected body. When people who know Jesus intimately first see him, they don't recognize him. Jesus suddenly appears in a locked room. His resurrected body bears the nail marks and the side wound. And Jesus in his resurrected body eats and he has flesh and bones. Jesus spends 40 days with his disciples and then he ascends bodily into heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So Jesus' resurrected body is the prototype for our resurrected bodies. We continue with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul writes, But some say, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come back? And Paul explains, the brightness of the sun is one kind, the brightness of the moon and the brightness of the stars another. For star differs from star in brightness, so also in the resurrection of the dead. It, the body, is sown corruptible. It's raised incorruptible. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, earthly. The second man, Christ, from heaven. And just as we've borne the image of the earthly one, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly one. So if I were to drop dead making this podcast, coughing as it were, and my body hit the ground, well, I'd be buried in the ground. That would be it. I'm planted in the ground. And then come the resurrection. That body will arise.
as an acorn is to an oak tree. Think of an acorn, a little oval seed with a, with a hat on top. It's put into the ground. The rains fall, the time passes, and it becomes a giant oak tree. Well, the oak tree looks nothing like the acorn. When you plant the acorn in the ground, you don't get a 50-foot acorn. You get an oak tree. So as an acorn is to an oak tree, so is an earthly body to a resurrected body. Paul writes, what you sow is not brought to life unless it dies. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel of wheat, perhaps, or some other kind, an acorn. But God gives it a body as he chooses, and to each of the seeds its own body. Well, on the evening of that first day of the month, Sunday evening, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Now, can you imagine? They're all inside the locked room. They're afraid of, of the authorities coming. After all, they had arrested and brutally crucified Jesus. What will happen to them? Jesus said, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you too. Here they are in the room, all afraid. They're all huddled together talking. When suddenly Jesus appears behind them, clears his voice. <clears throat> Excuse me. Peace be with you. I'll bet when he said that, they jumped out of their skin. Well, the disciples rejoiced. He, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. They rejoiced, and they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, and whose sins you retain are retained. Notice that Jesus appears in the room even though the doors are locked. Apparently, in his resurrected body, Jesus is not subject to a time-space continuum. Yet, Jesus' resurrected body is physical. For in the following scene, Thomas will actually touch him. And in Luke, Jesus eats with his disciples. In Luke 24, 41 to 44, uh, 42, Jesus said to them, Do you have anything to eat around here? I had a really tough weekend. He eats fish and bread with them. He said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. The word sent is apostello, the verb to send, from which we get the word apostle. A disciple, mathatas, is one who is a follower, a learner. A capital A apostle, one of the twelve, must be an eyewitness to Jesus' entire public ministry from his baptism through his death, burial, and resurrection. Well, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a private gift of the Holy Spirit from Jesus to his capital A apostles, a gift that, as Luke tells us, enables them to understand the scriptures, thus connecting the scriptural dots. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, enters our story very publicly in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. He said to them, 
whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. Grammatically, forgiven and retained are perfect passive indicatives, which can be translated are forgiven, are retained, or have been forgiven, have been retained. In the Greek perfect tense, the action of the verb has been completed and the results of the action continue in full effect. The passive voice indicates that the subject, of the uh, the subject is the recipient of the action. The Council of Trent defined that the power to proclaim and forgive sins is exercised in the sacrament of penance. Well, that's a lot to believe. And one of the apostles was not present at the time, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve. He was not there when Jesus came Sunday night. So we continue reading in John 20. The other disciples said to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, huh, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger into the nail marks and put my hand into his side, I won't believe it. I got I got to see it with my own eyes. Now a week later, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, although the doors were locked, and stood in their midst, behind Thomas, and he said, <clears throat> "Peace be with you." Thomas turned, astonished. Jesus said to Thomas, "Put your finger here, and see my hands." And bring your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believe. Thomas is utterly dumbfounded. He said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you come to believe because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have believed. Caravaggio has an extraordinary painting of the incredulity of St. Thomas. It's an oil on canvas from 1601. Google it. Look it up on the internet and see the painting. And you'll see Jesus pulling aside his garment with his right hand. And with Jesus' left hand taking Thomas's right hand, he's inserting Thomas's finger into, the pierced, into his pierced side. While Peter and Joe look on. And the look on Thomas's face is utterly astonishing. Now, we read in John that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written. You may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through this belief, you may have life in his name. The crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The single most important event in human history. And honestly, there is more evidence for the physical bodily resurrection of Christ than for any other event in ancient history. Why Paul tells us that he appeared to the Twelve, then he appeared to Paul himself on the road to Damascus, and Paul tells us why at one time he even appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. If you were living at the time of Jesus, there's no question about the resurrection. It was a fact. And that fact 
changes the history of humanity. I hope you had a very good Holy Week, a blessed Easter, and I look forward to talking with you again next week. Blessings. Bye-bye.